I want to tell you in brief what I'm going to be sharing with you at length in all three sessions so you know what you're looking for in our time together and, and so that you can understand where I'm coming from and really what I'm aiming for. So I'm going to tell you in brief what it is that I want to tell you at length in our three sessions together. And here it is. It just happens to be, just happens to be the most astounding and wonderful and amazing thing that a human mind can contemplate. And that is not a claim of conceit because I'm not the originator of the ideas. As you will discover in our time together, these ideas originate in an incredible source that I think all of us are tuning into, and that's why you're here this evening. But these ideas, this idea, this singular concept is what I'm going to be trying to communicate, and it is this. Non-coercive love is the only sustainable governing principle in the universe. Again, non-coercive love is the only sustainable governing principle in the universe. Let me say that another way just to reinforce, and it's, it's, it's really important to grasp this for where we're going. Love alone, love alone has the capacity inherently to go on and on and on and on into eternity future. It's the only eternally sustainable relational dynamic. And to, to paraphrase the Apostle Paul, everything other than the governing principle of love is winding down to an infinite nil, nothing and will cease to exist. The only thing that's going on and on and on into eternity future is non-coercive love. Now, having said that, you need to understand what I mean in this context when I use the word love. Because I'm not referring to, nor does Scripture mean in its usage of the word love when it says things like God is love and that God's law is love and that love does no harm to a neighbor. When the Bible uses the word love, when I'm using the word love, I'm not talking about a, a, a shallow sentimental feeling that's transitory depending on what you can do for me or what I like about you. When I love you because of what you can do for me, it's not actually you I love, it's me I love, and I'm using you to love myself. So when I use the word love in this context, when Scripture uses the word love, it is not a weak, shallow, sentimental, cotton candy, sweet Hollywood kind of love. The word love is this massively important and vital relational dynamic that defines who God is and how God operates in all relationships. It is, in a word, love is, in a word, absolute, unequivocal, other-centeredness as a relational dynamic and orientation. So when you hear the word love in our context, you're thinking, you're thinking other-centeredness. You're thinking each individual self oriented to the good of the other. 
This is what we're thinking of when we're using the word love. Now, in order to launch into our time together <laughs> this evening, and as a foundation for the whole series together, I want to introduce you to what I regard to be one of the most remarkable books ever written, ever published. Seriously, in the top 10 books, you're not going to find this in Easton Press's 100 Greatest Books of All Times. This is a book that very few people even know about, and yet it is a scholarly work of very serious magnitude. When I say the name of the book, the book published in 1949, you will immediately sense the genius in the title of the book alone. The book was written by Joseph Campbell. He was a historical and philosophical scholar who pursued a knowledge of the history of ideas. That's a discipline, the history of ideas. And he wrote a book that was published under the title, listen, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Hero with a Thousand Faces. And what this book has done for us is Joseph Campbell spent decades exploring, perusing, and researching all the great myths and stories of every civilization and culture in all of history and in every corner of the globe. And what he discovered is a hero with a thousand faces. In other words, he's saying in the title rather poetically, he's communicating the idea that wherever you look in history, in culture, you end up encountering the same basic hero, character, as the central personage in every myth. And so he says in A Hero with a Thousand Faces, he says that this, this, this one idea, this one hero, this one person with a thousand faces is, quoting him now, mankind's one great story. Mankind's one great story. Then he goes on and he calls it the timeless vision of humanity. And what he's suggesting is that, and this is before the internet, I mean, people weren't comparing notes. This is before publishing. Isolated cultures all over the world telling the same basic story over and over again with different basic surface veneer, different names for the hero and different names and places and different dynamics that all add up to the same basic thing. And so Campbell poses a question after saying, this is the one story, there isn't any other story. Nobody's ever imagined anything different than this. He says from, he poses a question, from what profundity of mind does this story derive? I mean, he's baffled. He's like, whoa, this is amazing. Everywhere you look, down through history and every culture, everybody has come up with the same basic narrative, the same basic story. And he says, from what profundity of mind? He's trying to understand the psychology that would give birth to the concept, to the hero with a thousand faces. And he says, from, from what profundity of mind? I mean, what, this is emerging from what? I mean, people, there's no plagiarism going on here. Nobody's copying anybody else. 
This is just a spontaneous, a spontaneous development of a story that everybody's telling. And he says, why is it that mythology everywhere is the same, the same, beneath its varieties of costumes? Why is it the same everywhere, he's asking. And even if you look at our modern myths, I mean, right now, uh, Infinity Wars, the Infinity Wars of the Avengers is the big story. The comic myths of DC Comics and the other one, I can't remember the name of it, Marvel Comics, okay, so, so, so what is it that they all have in common? Well, strangely enough, our modern stories, our superhero myths, actually are precisely the same as the myths that have come down through history that Joseph Campbell documents for us. And I'm going to suggest to you, and Joseph Campbell hints at this, that basically we have before us, listen to the language very carefully, we have a universal narrative, what he calls mankind's one great story. Nobody's saying anything different. Nobody can imagine anything different. And there are two characteristics to the story. Number one, I'm going to refer to characteristic number one that is universal in all human myth as the power over orientation. The power over orientation. Where the hero of the story exerts power over others. The second characteristic of the story is that the hero uses greater force or coercion to conquer the enemy, the evil, whatever that happens to be. So, so, so think very carefully about this. There is no fundamental difference in character or action for the hero or the villain. Pay close attention even to the superhero myths. Take a look at any of the great hero stories in our culture are going back. And everywhere you look, you come up with the same precise narrative. If there's evil, and evil is defined by the exertion of force, the only way to conquer evil is to have a hero who can exert more what? More force, more power. So these are the two characteristics. Every story down through history, power over orientation and the exertion of force or coercion to conquer evil. Now, another scholar, also from New York, he's deceased now, Walter Wink, coined a term to encapsulate this idea, this, this orientation. You may have heard the term before. It derives from Walter Wink, um, a biblical scholar from um, Auburn Theological Seminary in New York City. And here's the term that he came up with to try to, you know, wrap his mind. He said, okay, we need a term. What is this thing that defines all narratives down through history? And he referred to it as, quote-unquote, the myth of redemptive violence. The myth of redemptive violence. That's what's happening in DC and Marvel. Violence is leveraged Against what? Well, violence. 
and therefore of the same fundamental what? Character. So Walter Wink goes on and he says, listen, listen, the myth of redemptive violence is like this. He says, quote, it is the belief, it is the belief that violence saves, that war brings peace, and that might makes right. That's the myth of redemptive violence. It is the notion that evil, which is defined by violence, can be overcome with a superseding violence. He goes on and he poses a rather provocative question. And he says to us, but is it possible for violence to stop evil? And here's his answer to his own question. Violence, he says, never stops violence because its very success leads the others to imitate it. It works in the short term, but what did we say as our opening thesis? There's only one governing principle that is eternally sustainable. And that one principle is non-coercive love. I mean, in the microcosm, you know it's the only way to keep a marriage going. It's the only way to raise your kids so they don't hate you as adults. The only way for any relationship to work is under the influence of non-coercive love. The moment you lean in with force, everybody else leans out. Because think about it. Love and coercion cannot occupy the same emotional space. The moment you sense that you are being strong-armed, forced, manipulated, the moment the person who claims to love you clenches their fist and raises their voice, everything in you is shutting down. It doesn't work in any relationship, and it certainly doesn't work on the macro level with nations and ultimately in the establishment of the kingdom of God. So I'm going to suggest to you something that is quite revolutionary. And I, again, it's, that's not conceit. I didn't make it up. I'm not sharing with you anything that originated with me. So I'm pretty hyped about these ideas and can speak of them without exaggeration and tell you that you'll never contemplate anything more profoundly satisfying and deeply meaningful than the simple equation that God is love. That's not light fair. Don't let every, anyone ever say to you, oh, God is love, God is love, God is love. Let's preach something deep. Wait, 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 wait. In my church, we may disfellowship you for that. Probably not. That would be coercion. Listen, listen. You cannot contemplate a higher idea than that the most powerful person in the universe holds his power in reserve in favor of your freedom. And that is the kernel that lies at the heart of Adventist theology.
which we'll be getting to in our time together tomorrow, I will show you from Scripture that the eschatological genius of Adventism is the equation, God is love. And we'll see where that goes eschatologically with regards to final events. But right now I'm going to suggest to you that Joseph Campbell had a blind spot in his Hero with a Thousand Faces. And it is his blind spot precisely that gives rise to the genius of his work. Because Campbell is suggesting that this is the one universal story. That there's, no, that there's no other narrative. There's no other story. There's only one story. Power over and the exertion of force. There is no other story. There is no other hero. I'm going to suggest to you that there is in human history a single, what I'm going to call, counter-narrative. A single counter-narrative. There's the universal narrative, and there is a single counter-narrative. And the two characteristics of the single counter-narrative are these. Number one, the counter-narrative has a hero who operates on the premise of power under. It is a power under orientation to others. Secondly, this one counter-narrative, rather than using force to conquer force, force to conquer evil, uses love to conquer evil. According to this story, there is a power more powerful than coercion. And it is demonstrably, demonstrably more powerful in that it allows you to come toward me voluntarily. I mean, what's more powerful? Me with my muscles or my mind manipulating or physically forcing you to somehow obey me or do what I say? What's more powerful? Overpowering you with physical might and mental manipulation? What's more powerful, that or to love you and to so protect your freedom that you would voluntarily begin to love me back and you would cross the space between us and be my friend and be my confidant and be my eternal fellow in the things of God, not because you have to, but because you want to. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that God's operating on this principle. I'm going to suggest to you that the genius of the gospel of Christ is non-coercive love. That God is leveraging this principle for the salvation of our souls. For those of you who are Seventh-day Adventists, you'll be familiar with the author, long deceased, Ellen White. And in two single sentences, she encapsulates the ideas that we're talking about so far. Quotation number one in quote marks. Love, love alone awakens love. Sentence number two. Love is the agent God uses to expel sin from the heart. I'm going to put it to you in my own words now. God is going to save you and me 
by his love alone or not at all? In the final analysis, you are free in the most extreme sense imaginable. And it is the genius of God's love and grace to put on display before you and me such an irresistible love, listen, that to say no to it is to so fundamentally alter your state of being that you would be incapable of enjoying his presence for all eternity. You will be ruled out of existence, not by his choice, but by exercising your freedom to its ultimate conclusion of personal demise. God will save you and me by his love alone or not at all. So there's one counter-narrative. Now check this out. The three sessions that we have together are going to be unfolding as incarnation of Christ and its implications for the politics of Jesus and religious liberty. Number two, the teachings of Christ and their implications for religious liberty and the politics of Jesus. And number three, the death and resurrection of Christ and their implications for religious liberty and the politics of Jesus. We're just talking about the incarnation of Christ, the teachings of Christ, and the death and resurrection of Christ. That's what we're here to talk about. So with regards to the incarnation of Christ, just allow your mind and heart to process the words of John chapter 1. If you have a Bible, I think they are in the pews. If you want to grab a Bible and look at John chapter 1, verse 1. If you know these words, just, just let, me, let me almost sing them to you. They're so beautiful. Here the, the New Testament author of the Gospel of John, John says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. That Word, as you know, Word, with a capital W, is the Greek word logos. And that word, literally in Greek philosophy and Greek thinking of the time and down to our time, logos means basically the thing behind the thing behind the thing that defines reality. It is the logic of God. Jesus comes into the world as the mind of God on display. Or to use the words of that author we quoted a moment ago, Ellen White, the incarnation is God, Jesus is God's thought made audible. Quote, unquote. This is the logos. The logos is the way God thinks, the way God feels, the way God relates, the way God operates, put on display before us in a person. This is why in Hebrews chapter 1, the Apostle Paul will say, he is the very image of God at the height of its glory. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. He is the logos of God, the rationale of God, the mind of God, the thinking and feeling and relating process of God. He is the definition of the only sustainable principle in all of reality. He alone and those who fall in love with him will live forever. Everything else is coming to an end. Now check this out. 
The Word was in the beginning. And this Word, John says, just so you all know, he's saying, listen, listen, this Word, we, we saw him, this Word was God. This is verses 1 through 3. And then verse 14, absolutely mind-blowing. John 1:14. listen. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God showed up with us in our immediate proximity as one of us. One version says God moved into the neighborhood. He came close to us. I love the title of an old, old book by Max Lucado, God Came Near. Well, that's what's happening in Jesus. Now, the apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says it like this because he's so utterly blown away by it that he has to find language to express it. And so he says, he says, great is the mystery. He says, without controversy. This is not disputable, he says. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. That's not a great, a great translation because we're thinking godliness is a word that we apply to the human being, right? Being godly. Okay, the better translation would be, great is the mystery of what God is like. Great is the mystery of God's likeness. Great is the mystery of exactly who and what kind of person God is. Great is the mystery of what God is like. And then he tells us, God was manifest in the flesh. <laughs> That's what God is like. Listen, his point is that God is the kind of God who comes down. That's his point. The point is that this God was manifest in the flesh by, by, by voluntarily condescending to come among us. And then, and then Paul says, and when he got here, he was, he was justified in the spirit, that is, vindicated, to be who he claimed to be. Not justified in the sense that we're justified in Christ in the salvational sense. Jesus was vindicated as who precisely he claimed to be. He was justified in the spirit. Check this out. He was seen by angels. The implication here is that the angels that were observing this too and were like, what? This, is, this is indeed mysterious. This is indeed without controversy absolutely mind-blowing. The angels are watching the whole thing go down. Check this out. Preached among the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. People began to believe. Could it be that God's like that? Because we always thought God was like that. We just have one story, one narrative, one myth. We've we got Zeus. We've got Molech. We've got Ishtar. We've got Dagon. We've got Baal. We've got power, 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 and more power. We've got violence and coercion upon violence and coercion. And the angels and humans and Gentiles are all arrested by a whole new possibility. 
a, a whole different kind of story, a different narrative, a different hero. I mean, seriously, could it be? Is it, so is that, should we believe he was believed on in the world? He was believed on, people began, John, James, Peter, even Thomas began to say, we had it all wrong. We thought God was, but really God is. We were looking for a military messiah who would take the Romans down, seat himself with violence on a throne, put James and John on either side, and rule the world with precisely the same kind of character and power that Rome itself was operating by. No change in character. No change in fundamental storyline. Jesus comes into the world and Paul says, sit up and take notice because this is different. This is utterly and completely other than anything anybody ever expected. You're telling me the Gentiles, the Greeks, even the Jews, you're telling me that that's God? I mean, isn't he from Nazareth? Isn't his dad Joseph? What family is he from? We don't see the prestige. We don't see the power. Where's the money? We want a powerful, power-mongering, wealthy, well-dressed, well-spoken, highly educated, perfectly poised king on a throne to kick some Roman hiney. And Jesus comes into the world and he's not like anything anybody could have seen coming. So when he comes to the world, he's justified in the spirit. He's seen by angels who are blown away and in mysteries into which they desire to look. He's preached and people begin to believe. And then what? He's received up into glory, Paul says. He came all the way down and redefined up. He didn't come down. He didn't come down and say, that's enough of this down power under stuff. He didn't just play act for a period of time and then say, okay, I'm done with this whole humility thing. I'm done with this whole submission to the needs of others thing. Now I'm going to beat my chest and I'm going to exalt myself and lay aside that other character that was just a temporary display. It wasn't a temporary display. As my friend Bishop, Fred Bischoff <laughs> taught me years ago, he's an Adventist historian and theological mind that has been extremely beneficial to me over the years. Fred Bischoff said, Ty, Ty, he didn't come down and then leave down, down. He came down and took down up. He's as humble as he ever was. He's as good as he ever was. He's as much the servant king as he ever was. And Paul is blown away by the whole spectacle. Paul is like, really? Is it, could, this, could this be true? Well, it is without controversy. 
a great mystery, he says, that God would be this kind of person that we didn't expect. Because all of our stories are oriented toward the powerful exerting their power over the weak. God comes into the world, and what I'm suggesting to you this evening is that the incarnation of Christ, which is to say the incarnation of God in the flesh, is the most revolutionary, backwards, upside-down, counterintuitive, and ingenious political maneuver in history. What we see happening in Jesus is the only power powerful enough to draw me and you out of ourselves to live for someone other than ourselves. And this is the foundation of the kingdom of God. Listen, listen. The politics of Jesus, which we're unpacking now in the incarnation, we'll continue unpacking tomorrow morning when we delve into the teachings of Jesus. And then when we look at the death and resurrection of Christ, we will be so utterly blown away with the beauty of who God is that we will hunger and thirst to be the kind of people that operate by the same relational dynamics with which he has related to us in Christ. Listen, listen. What we're discovering this evening is quite simply this, that the politics of Jesus are the politics of God inasmuch as Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. And it is precisely that in the flesh part that tells us how truly good the most powerful person in the universe happens to be. The incarnation of Christ is revelatory. He's getting something done in the world by becoming a member of the human race. It is the most monumental act of love imaginable. I mean, think about it. What we're talking about here is true power. I mean, listen, we're not talking about the president of the United States or the pharaohs or the Caesars of Rome. God is, in fact, the most powerful person in the universe. If anybody has the right to define legitimate exercise of power, it's God. And what we have before us in Christ is that the most powerful person in the universe chose to hold all that power in reserve. Use it for things like creation and making little providential arrangements 
for you to meet somebody and lead them to Jesus and exert some of that power to maybe multiply your financial situation a little bit so that you can provide for those you love. It takes all that, 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 that power, holds it in reserve, channels it towards the kinds of things that that kind of power can be used for, like creation. And he refuses to channel that power to the manipulation or the molestation of our hearts and minds. I mean, think about it. If he wanted to, I mean, he's God. He could literally do anything he wants and be accountable to nobody. He could right now blink his eyes once and all of us would pass out of existence and literally nobody would know the difference. Blink his eyes again and create a whole new race of beings who are programmed to do exactly what he says when he says it. He could have made us different than we are. He could have made us as robots or pre-programmed machines. He could have made us slaves. He simply, profoundly, chose not to. Because the God of the universe, with all of his power, wants something far more dignified and beautiful than your obligation to him because he happens to be more powerful than you are. The God of the universe veiled his majesty, his divinity, his power, the dazzling brightness of all that he is. He veiled it in what Michael Card calls a distressing disguise. He, he, he donned our flesh so that his power would be invisible in the encounter. So that we could analyze his character, the way he thinks and feels and the way he relates. So we could analyze his goodness and his love and, and not knowing who he really is. Fall in love with him on the premise of his love for us and say, yes, I love you. And then at the appropriate time, he's unveiled in all his glory. You're like, whoa, I just fell in love with God? Yeah, you just fell in love with God. He's the most powerful person in the universe. And the powerful, most powerful person in the universe can do anything he wants, right? So here's what God wants. Well, first, here's what God doesn't want. If there's anything that the almighty God of the universe doesn't want, it's control. What God wants is for your freedom and my freedom to be so overwhelmed with a vision of what we could be in the light of his love for us that we would become what we were meant to be all along. Dignified creatures of responsible self-governance who choose to do what is right because it is right. Because right doing makes God happy and blesses others and causes them to flourish. So we panned out 
pan back in now. Joseph Campbell says that history is defined by one solitary myth. One story, one narrative. And in that one story that every culture down through history has told, the hero operates by a power over orientation and seeks to conquer evil with force and violence. What Joseph Campbell overlooked is that there is one hero in history, there is one story, there is one narrative in history that puts to shame all others, that overturns the entire system, that gives human beings a whole new way to imagine governance, that give human beings a whole new way to think about what it means to be in relationships as husbands and wives and parents and children and fellow church members and community members and as a nation in relation to one another politically and nation to nation. Jesus came into the world and literally put on display for us a whole new way to be human. And that whole new way to be human is to love others with the same love with which God has loved us. Thank you for your time.